All right. Good morning and welcome to Climate Finance and the Carbon Markets, uh, your podcast to find out everything you ever wanted to know about carbon um, and the climate and how it's how we're going to save the world through through markets. Uh, today, we have Stephanie Russo, who's the uh, Chief Strategy Officer for Carbon Growth Partners, a innovative uh, investment fund based in Australia and focused on investing across uh, across the spectrum of uh, the carbon markets. And her previous history is in government and in finance. Uh, and with that, I'll just say hi, Stephanie. Morning, Charles. I, maybe your intro should say all the things you want to know and maybe some things you don't want to know about <laughs> the carbon markets and finance. <laughs> exactly. So, Steph, tell me a little, tell us a little bit about your background. Just give us a little thumbnail of, of some of the places you've been in your career. Sure. So, um, I would describe my career history as a bit of a kind of meandering history that probably makes a lot of sense now in Carbon Growth Partners. Um, but might not have in previous roles. So I started my career working in Indigenous economic development in Australia. Um, so helping Indigenous communities um, use their land and resources um, to bring money into those communities. Uh, left that space and went into government because I thought government sets all of the rules on these things and spent about a decade working in the water market, energy markets and carbon markets. So setting up those rules and how they operate and then thought, there's a place for business and finance here. I'm interested in what that looks like. I worked for one of Australia's large financial institutions um, and then thought, there's a role for conservation organisations here. I'm going to figure out what that looks like in this market piece and worked at the Nature Conservancy um, for a number of years and then recently left to join Carbon Growth Partners and bring all of those different pieces together so we can channel finance into really meaningful outcomes, not only for climate, but conservation and communities. It's sort of a, sounds like a little, little longer version of the gig economy, right? Where, where you did a chunk of this and a chunk of that, and it's all making a, a making sense at the moment, which is, yeah, is pretty I think cool. Every place that you kind of go opens up another opportunity to figure out, you know, how can we use this market or adapt this market and how do we bring others in? And, you know, I think that's actually the really interesting opportunity about carbon markets um, and this finance space that's really started to emerge. Well, I know, uh, having worked with you for, for quite a while now, that you are a policy wonk and expert. And so I wanted to dig in a little bit to the policy world uh, today and, and try to understand and extract and kind of give our listeners a sense of like, where is this interest coming from and what's the policy framework around it? So can you tell us a little bit about in like a sort of a, a minute what the UN has to do with this, where it all started, give us the trajectory of, you know, from Rio to, to Kyoto to Paris to Glasgow. If you can do that in a minute, I'll give you, uh, I don't know, a carbon credit. How about that? Well, I, the short answer is they have a lot and a little to do about it. <laughs> so um, for anyone who knows, I guess, about the role of the UN, they basically play a coordination role between different countries in setting rules and trying to get commitments on how you solve kind of intractable international problems that involve countries needing to work together. Um, and in the climate space, that's had, had a few iterations over time, um, as you mentioned with Rio and Kyoto, but the, really the most meaningful was Paris. So the Paris Agreement under the um, UNFCCC really set a strong commitment from national governments to climate action um, with 
you know, a, a two degrees below two degrees threshold that they said it was the first time they'd actually made a commitment. And importantly, it's not just developed countries, but developing as well. Um, and so what they do is they set the rules. But when I say they have a lot and a little to do with it, the action really comes down to what national governments choose to do and how they implement the rules out of the Paris Agreement. And also we've seen in this space, I'm definitely running out of time, um, corporates are increasingly playing a role here because, you know, they're looking at it and saying, governments, you're taking too long, hurry up. There's something that we can do here. And consumers are expecting that of corporates as well. They're holding them to just as much account as they would hold governments. And so now we've got this market with lots of different players in it. So, so what did the Paris Agreement actually say? What did, the, what did the 190 some signatories to Paris Agreement actually say they would do? And, and how do they think about it? Yeah, I think the key elements in the Paris Agreement are one that the first time everyone agreed that they had a role to play in addressing climate action. So whether they were developing or developed countries, everyone had a role in this um, system. There was recognition that climate change was real. I know that, you know, under Kyoto, there was a, a recognition that climate change was happening, um, that it was caused by humans and that we needed to take collective action. And then they made some commitments about how they would work together to actually address that. So some of the key elements are around accounting frameworks. And so making sure that each country is um, has an inventory, they're accounting for how many, how the level of their carbon emissions across different sectors. And then they're also actively using policy measures to reduce those emissions. And there's a number of different policy tools that they can use. And the idea is that everyone is responsible for that trajectory of bringing down global warming. And they have these things called nationally determined contributions which is the way that each country divides up their portion of their contribution to climate change. And they set these plans around their nationally um, determined contributions about what they're going to do to reduce those emissions. And that's, you know, I think a really different kind of framework um, than what we saw under Kyoto, where there wasn't necessarily a, tar necessarily a target that everyone was aiming for, but also it wasn't recognising that everyone had a responsibility to play there. And then there's some other elements around how you use markets and the responsibilities of developing developed countries to provide finance to developing countries in the kind of specifics of those mechanics. Those, those nationally determined contributions, really the kind of the heart of the matter, aren't they? Basically, it's everybody said, we'll do what we can do. Uh, we'll write it down and we'll report back. Uh, and... You know, talk a little bit about kind of the, the weakness of the system, uh, of the kind of the, the enforceability problem. Uh, can yeah. you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so I think the, the key way in which the Paris Agreement is really enforced is through pressure, public pressure, um, public accountability. That's the reason that they have the annual conference of the parties. Um, there are timeframes where nationally determined contributions need to be updated but there's no teeth to the Paris Agreement, really. There's no compliance um, mechanisms that sit around that. It's about doing what you say you're going to do and every, you know, and you're publicly head to, held to account because people can see what you've committed to doing. Um, and I think that is, you know, both a strength and a weakness of the Paris Agreement. Um, but I think if you look outside of the UN system and you look at what's changing in terms of people's understanding of climate change, 
their interest and appetite in acting on climate change, that starts to put that pressure on those national governments to actually put things in place. And there's lots of different ways that they can do that. Um, And particularly in the lead up, if you look at Glasgow, in the kind of two weeks in the lead up to Glasgow, you saw all of a sudden significant improvements in ambition because countries have to front up, their world leaders have to front up. So the first couple of days are, you know, the prime ministers and presidents of these countries having to front up in front of their peers and say, I'm doing what I said I would do. And there's a huge amount of media there. Um, And that actually works reasonably well in an international system if you can start to get the attention on these issues that's needed there but there aren't any in kind of enforceable mechanisms behind that. There's no world climate court. You can't get dragged in front of the Hague for, for climate crimes, you, none of those sort of things. But, but you're right. I mean, there's, a, there's this kind of notion that, you know, people in the individual countries are going to hold the political leaders accountable for this stuff. And, and that kind of then goes to the, those national regimes. And there's also regional regimes of, of like, how do you manage this stuff? How, like, how do you do that accounting? How do you, How do you sort of, uh, you know, what sort of systems you put in place uh, around that? Can you talk a little bit about the different types of national and regional uh, efforts to to deal with with climate? Yeah, I mean, a great example is the EU ETS, so the EU's Emissions Trading Scheme. And one of the things that they've done in the way that they've set that up, so that's a regional scheme, they've explicitly linked things to the Paris Agreement. And so they have set their rules so that, you know, historically, um, credits coming from developing countries could count towards or be used within that regional system. So they have a lot of control over what's in and what's out. And interestingly, they're now talking about this thing that, you know, you might get into in a in a different session, Charles, around the carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is their way of a bit of a quasi-compliance um, scheme mm-hmm. where they say, if you want to import a good um into the EU. So if you're outside the EU and you're exporting into the EU, that's fine, but you have to account for your carbon emissions. So they have a really strong system um, in the EU, a really strong compliance system. It covers a lot of sectors. They have quite strict rules. And they're looking outside and saying, no one else is doing that. How do we make sure they do it? Well, the way they do that is by requiring anyone who's bringing goods into the EU to do that. Um, There are some other systems out there there are fuel taxes before, before you go uh, too far, far afield on that the because the, the eu system is really the biggest and, and sort of the most advanced and and uh sophisticated can you kind of back up a, a, a sort of le- level of gener- generality above it and so how does it work so if you're a polish coal plant uh how do you get captured in this and what are your obligations and and how does that like how do you what does it mean to have an allowance uh, to, to pollute and, and how do you trade that in this, in this emissions trading scheme? Yeah, so basically in an emissions trading scheme, there are thresholds that are set on sectors and particular actors. Um, and if you are below that threshold, you may have a credit that you can trade within that system. And if you're above that threshold, then you need to go and acquire a credit to make sure that you're within um, that system. One of the reasons that that works quite well is if that is a, a um, and this is the reason that the EU carbon credit price is quite high, it operates quite well as a closed system because there's only a limited number of places that you can get credits from. People are required by law to acquire those credits if they're um, above their thresholds. 
but it doesn't lock in a particular price. The market is determining the price, mm. which is slightly different from if you were looking at a carbon tax, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so if you had a carbon tax, you pay whatever that is. And if you don't set that carbon tax level appropriately, it may mean, you know, if you're a heavily polluting industry, but it's a very lucrative industry, you go, fine, don't worry, I'm just going to pay the tax. So you need to set that level. Whereas in the system of an ETS, you have to be trading those allowances across the system. So it also incentivizes people, um, corporates and companies to uh, decarbonize as well as mm. offset their credits gotcha. rather than just looking to, you know, so a tax system where you might just pay and go, it's cheaper for me to pay. I don't need to do anything or change my operations. Mm -hmm. So essentially, the 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 you know you're you're a power plant operating. You know you're burning coal. The European Union comes along and says, "Well, you've been burning this much coal for years. Um, you're going to get that right to burn it next year, but the year after that, you're going to have to burn ten percent less. And uh, and if you burn more than that, you know ninety percent of what your historic average is." Then you're going to have to go and, and buy essentially that amount of carbon. So that that's so that's basically the notion here that you can let the market solve the problem. And then the tax question: People even think about setting tax rates for carbon. Do you know what's the um, how, what's the sort of theory behind kind of the, how you how you set a tax? <laughs> Is uh, it a politically I, political determination only, or is there some science behind it? I think. Less science, more economics. So uh -huh. when they're looking at the, um, I should say, ultimately political. I mean, Australia is a really great example of where um, bringing in a carbon tax in many ways pushed back Australia's climate action maybe a decade um, because of the manner in which it was done. But usually you look at um, the, I guess, the where you want to be in terms of reducing your emissions, what each sector needs to do to get there. And so uh, what that, you know, the financials kind of economics of those sectors might look like. And so where you can set that um, price. One of the worries often um, with any pricing mechanism, whether that's a tax or an ETS, is whether that gets then passed down to consumers. And I think that's often mm. one of the big concerns about using any market-based kind of mechanism for an environmental outcome. But it's also the way that any market works. You know, it's just that right. I think there is this not a kind of visceral, like a bit of an allergic reaction to this idea of kind of monetizing the environment and then also that people will have to pay for um, this outcome. But it is somewhere between, you know, a large amount of economic modeling, looking at how the economy might respond and then also what they can kind of get away with politically um, one of the interesting mechanisms, and I think that works quite well, is if there's a ratcheting up of the price in your tax. Mm. So you might set a floor price, then you might increase that over time. Um, you might use the market to be able to um, determine what that price looks like over time. And you can do hybrids. There's, you know, gotcha. 60 different countries with some form of carbon market out there, um, and they all look slightly different. I think it's about mm. 60. Should check my figures on that probably. Does that include both uh, the taxes and the cap and trade systems? Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, now it's winter up here in the Northern hemisphere. I know you guys are enjoying uh, summer in the Southern uh, and you, you'd think that the politicians and planners might've have, have, have kind of figured this out that, that it does get to be winter once a year. 
but the big noise in Europe and the North America uh, and other places where it's cold is that fuel prices are going up and heating is co costs are going up. And, and so the, the first thing that you hear is that, uh, you know, that the politicians are now thinking, well, how, you know, how do we subsidize, you know, home heating costs and how do we deal with the fact that, uh, you know, we're trying to get rid of coal and coal's, you know, cheap and, and built in and, uh, you know, it, it, it strikes me as as odd that, you know, it's the heart of winter is the first time that people might have thought of this problem of uh, of energy supply and heating issues. And but there is a real political problem with that with respect to the carbon you know, taxing or, or um, uh, you know, otherwise incentivizing through cap and trade systems, you know, reduction of carbon. How, how do you think that's going to work in the next uh, five years, let's say? Yeah, I think. Countries run into problems if they think that an ETS will solve all of the problems or a pricing mechanism. And I think that's the space um, where people are kind of now recognising and looking at saying, you know, we're in the depths of winter and coal is cheaper and, you know, um, fuel prices are going up, energy usage is going up. You know, in Australia, um, as an example, you know, haven't been so great on the ETS kind of tax mechanism side of things, but have had a lot of um, both household and um, commercial energy efficiency programs that work alongside these things that are focused more on large companies' emissions. So helping people to reduce their own personal household energy usage, um, improving uh, you know, their access to renewable energy, for example. So, you know, Australia is a little bit different to parts of the Northern Hemisphere, but we have quite a lot of sunshine in Australia. So how about we harness that through solar as an example? And we have a lot of space in Australia as well. So we have a, quite a lot of land that um, can be used for solar arrays and things like that. Yeah. So there's been quite a lot of focus on Australia um, in Australia, particularly around energy efficiency and reducing some of those household costs. So I think the system, the kind of the carbon market itself sits within a broader system of climate policies. And so it needs to be that broader context that's in place as well to deal with some of those um, kind of household, consumer, individual mm. challenges, as well as large companies. So, yeah, things like sort of access to, to cheaper forms of, of energy, sort of subsidizing those weatherization, insulation of homes. I know the UK is trying to work on these sorts of things uh, to get, get people's houses uh, insulated because uh, it just costs so much more to, to, uh, to, to keep warm in a, in, a, in a leaky, uninsulated house, uh, you know, especially some of the older, older vintages of houses. All right, well, we have run up to the end of our time and uh, greatly appreciate your time, Steph. I think uh, I'm, I'm, you're definitely coming back on the podcast because we've got a lot more to talk about. Thank you so much. And, uh, we'll see you next time on, uh, the climate finance and the carbon markets podcast. Thanks very Thanks much. Thanks for having me. You bet. <laughs>